Morning, everyone. I'm reading from yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 1 down to verse 15. I hope that you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. I do not think that I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Is it not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness? Their end will be what their actions deserve. Thanks, Jenny. Good morning, everyone. Um, I add my welcome to that of Bertie, especially if you're new or visiting. Uh, it's wonderful that you've decided to join us today. If we haven't met, my name's Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Grace Anglican. Uh, please do keep your Bibles open to that passage, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 15, uh, and I will uh, lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us in your word, the Holy Scriptures, and that you do that for our good, for our training in righteousness and for our correction and for making us more like Jesus. And we pray that uh, you'd help us this morning to set aside any distractions or hindrances, that we would tremble and rejoice at your word and become more like our Lord. It's uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The topic of false teaching and more importantly of false teachers, is one of the most consistently mentioned issues in the New Testament. At least 18 of the 27 books that make up the New Testament have something to say directly about the issue of false teaching and those who deliver it. In my observation, when it comes to approaching the issue of false teachers... As followers of Jesus, we can easily drift into one of two unhelpful extremes. On the one hand, there's the witch hunt mentality, 
We're going to sniff out every last bit of heresy and condemn every false teacher so we can feel really good about ourselves. We're doctrinally pure and they're all corrupt and having pointed it out, we can assure ourselves that we're super secure in the faith. Uh, Maybe you've experienced something like that or even tended in that direction from time to time yourself. On the other hand, there's the equally problematic approach that I call the mum's mantra approach. Basically, if you don't have anything nice to say, spot on. We we think that being godly means being polite and not saying anything negative. So we just kind of ignore the issue of false teachers and say things like, "Well, I'm sure they mean well, and who are we to judge, etc." For a lot of people today, it seems that the only heresy is saying that there's heresy. Again, maybe you've experienced something like this or tended in this direction yourselves. But as I've said before, and I'll gladly say again, our experience and our practice is one thing. The inspired word of God, the Holy Scriptures, is another thing. And the Bible stands over our experience, over our practice. God's word alone is to ultimately inform the way we think about the issues that it raises. And 2 Corinthians as a whole, but especially our passage for today and also for next week, has a lot to say regarding false teachers. How does God want us as followers of Jesus to approach the ongoing problem of false teachers? Well, today's passage has much to say in answer to that question. Now, I hope you remember from last week, we're up to the point where the Apostle Paul is deliberately distinguishing himself from those people he calls, or he will soon call, the super apostles. That is, false teachers who have infiltrated the Corinthian church. They had apparently made all sorts of accusations about Paul, and last week we gleaned seven important things, seven principles uh, to remember when it comes to weathering a personal attack. And if you missed last week's uh, sermon, I heartily commend it to you. You can get it on our uh, YouTube channel. But defending oneself against slander is one thing. Defending the church against a real danger that threatens to undermine salvation, well, that's another thing. And it's actually at that point that Christians are right to stop being tolerant The section starts with Paul saying, I hope you'll put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. Why the strange start? Well, he was almost certainly labelled foolish by these super apostles. And so in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way, he embraces the label of being foolish, which actually becomes something of a mild put-down to the Corinthians. Paul implies that perhaps he was truly silly to, to genuinely love and care for the Corinthian church given that it looks very much like they're tempted to reject the truth of the apostolic gospel that he brought. And so from verse 2, he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The thing that has made Paul afraid, the thing that threatens to make him look like a fool for having a godly jealousy for these Corinthians, 
is that they look like they could be led astray from their sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And uh, sincere and pure devotion to Christ means following him. That, that's just, it's one or the other. You take up your cross to follow Jesus. So being led astray from sincere and pure devotion is like your salvation is at stake. And what is it that will lead these people astray? Well, it's not actually the false teachers per se, but the fact that they tolerate false teachers and the distortions they bring. Look again at verse 4. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Tolerating, putting up with false teachers and their distortions is the big problem. And it's a problem that has, I wonder if you notice, a lot of scary elements. Firstly, notice that it's possible to have an inauthentic experience of receiving the Spirit. When the ascended Jesus first poured out his Spirit, he made sure that the event could not be misinterpreted. He enabled his disciples to speak in languages that people from different regions could yet understand. It's kind of like the opposite of the Tower of Babel. They united against God and he confused the language. Now in Christ they're united and they can all understand each other. But the church on that day was exclusively Jewish. It was a bunch of Jews. You can read this at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. Jews from all nations under heaven who were present when the Holy Spirit was first poured out. So... On subsequent occasions, when Gentiles, non-Jews, began to hear the gospel and repent and be converted, God the Holy Spirit decided he'd not only bring them to repentance and faith, but that he'd also give a similar visual manifestation so that the Jewish believers could be absolutely assured that it really was the work of God the Holy Spirit. He really is bringing Gentiles into the kingdom just as much as they've been brought in. Once the Gentile churches became established, it was sufficient for God the Spirit to bring God's chosen children to repentance and faith without necessarily the need for additional visual displays of his supernatural work. But from our passage here, we see that Paul assumes it's possible for people to receive a spirit that is not the Spirit of God who accompanies the preaching of the gospel. Maybe, we don't know, but maybe what was happening was something similar to what I, and I imagine maybe some of you, might have seen in some church settings up to this day, where the Spirit is supposedly received and, and people speak in languages that, well, in this case, nobody can understand. Or where the Spirit's movement is marked by a decisive loss of self-control which is a dead giveaway that it's not the Holy Spirit. For one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit happens to be self-control. In any event, as we can see from Paul's words here, a false receiving of the Spirit goes hand in hand with a different gospel and a different Jesus. The second scary thing is that what these false teachers are offering is, of course, attractive of course it's attractive. Just as Eve, if you remember in the story, saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye and looks good for food, of course it looks delightful. 
Well, so a different gospel presents as something enticing. When you put together all the apparent claims of the super apostles, it looks like we are dealing with the ancient equivalent of prosperity preaching. Uh, People who suppose that worldly success and status is an indication of gospel faithfulness. Presenting as healthy, successful and well-loved is supposedly what makes for good gospel ministry. Elevation of self is seen as the mark of a good teacher as opposed to humility and suffering, which Paul keeps insisting sets him apart. And of course, that initially at least can sound really pleasing, really enticing. Uh, Here's a quote from a modern-day false teacher, I'm not going to say who, that I would imagine sounds very attractive. This person says, and the words will come on the screen, you are destined to reign in life. You are called by the Lord to be a success, to enjoy provision, to enjoy health, and to enjoy a life of victory. I want you to know that it is not the Lord's desire that you live a life of defeat, poverty, and failure. He has called you to be the head and not the tail. Now, I know that when you think about that for two seconds, you realise that, hang on, doesn't this mean that all the faithful brothers and sisters who live in the slums of Nairobi or Bangladesh or all the Christians who've been jailed or executed in North Korea and Afghanistan, according to this teaching, have not truly been called by the Lord? That's ridiculous. But even so, you can see how, initially at least, maybe if you squint, that this kind of thing can sound really attractive. The tolerating of the false teachers, their different gospel, their different Jesus and their different spirit is something that drives Paul, and I would say also God, to a passionate jealousy. So much so that he's happy to go into fall mode in order to set them straight. And it's in this mode that he finally names the elephant in the room, the so-called super apostles, and highlights their ungodliness by contrasting his own behaviour to theirs. Verse 5, I do not think that I am the least inferior to those super apostles, which, by the way, is the first time in this letter that he names the false teachers. Well, names, he gives them a, a category. Now, it's obviously the case that the Corinthians know exactly the people that Paul is talking about and that they've claimed, apparently, to be far superior to Paul. Uh, Two of the reasons they consider themselves superior is that, one, they are trained orators, that is, trained professional speakers, and, two, that they consider their performances, their their speeches, I guess, worthy of payment. Verse 6... I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I need. And just as a by the by, I'm reasonably confident to say that's more than simply financial needs. We've gone a lot about money in in, in 2 Corinthians, but there's more than just giving money. I think they supplied other things. Continuing verse 9, I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way 
and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Archaea will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. Translation, big summary of all this. Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the fact that I did not charge for my ministry. In fact, I went to great lengths to ensure I'd be the opposite of burdensome. And I'm proud of that. I am so, tongue-in-cheek, unworthy of being paid for my ministry that I'll call my support from other churches robbery, which is really kind of more like what the super apostles are doing to you. The way those super apostles ridicule me and show how unlike them that I am, bring it on, it's actually something I wear as a badge of honour, says Paul. Uh, I've heard that if you're a singer or a musician or a DJ uh, who does wedding gigs in particular and if you're not, you're not getting very much work a way that you can get more work is to, would you believe increase your advertised rates if you're more expensive to hire people in the wedding industry assume you must do a really top-notch job and when it comes to the big pagan wedding day which, you know many people foolishly ascribe so much more importance than is due, then of course only the best will do. And so they spend the money. Need more work? Charge more money. By charging more money, you're effectively talking yourself up, you see, which is the kind of thing that, of course, the pagans are going to chase after. But here Paul is saying, I do not belong to this fallen world and the way it operates, but to the kingdom that is not of this world. I follow the one who had no place to lay his head, the one who lowered himself to be a slave and to suffer the death that you and I deserve. I'll gladly talk myself down and do what I can to not charge you anything. The other really important thing to notice in this slab of text here is that the driving motivation between Paul's unhinged conduct is not only godly jealousy, but also here, of course, love. Love that doesn't elevate the self, but the other. Love that sacrificially bears burdens in order to benefit the other. Love that looks very much like what you see in the person and work of Jesus, who would suffer in order to present sinners like us, pure in the sight of God. Interestingly, elsewhere, Paul instructs the young church leader Timothy to stamp out the work of false teachers so as to promote, what do you know, Christ-like love. 1 Timothy 1.3, there it is. Paul would write in another letter, I urge you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see a loving leader and a loving church see, as part of their Christian walk, a great importance in making sure that false teachers are not tolerated, which means they obviously need to be identified and therefore avoided. The elephant in the room has been named, and yet it's godly jealousy and godly love that have led Paul 
to that point. And you can tell he's being loving even as he condemns the super apostles and frankly the Corinthians for indulging them because of the way that he's conducted himself toward the Corinthians in other matters, such as choosing not to be a financial burden on them. And with that, we come to the really pointy end of the matter, whereby Paul has moved decisively now from defence to attack. Verse 12, and I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. In other words, Paul will keep endorsing and validating weakness and hardship. He will keep sacrificing for the sake of elevating the others rather than himself. He will keep boasting in his weakness. He will keep resolving to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified, as he said back in 1 Corinthians. And one of the reasons he'll do that is not only to see these Corinthians firmly established in the faith, but also, as he says, to see that the false teachers have the ground cut out from under them. And why will he shamelessly show up and contend with these super apostles in order that they are rejected and condemned? Well, verse 13, here's why. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Now, brothers and sisters, there is no getting around this, uncomfortable as it may be. The authorised ambassador for the risen Jesus, namely the Apostle Paul, indicates that we can expect Christian teachers who are in reality servants of Satan and therefore are destined for hell. Christian teachers who are serving Satan, Christian teachers who are going to hell. They do a good enough job of masquerading even as apostles of Christ that genuine believers can be misled and compromise or even lose their pure devotion to Christ. An obvious question to ask at this point is, of course, how can you know which teachers are legit and which are false? Well, the answer's already become at least half apparent as we've looked through this passage and others. We, we will see in the coming weeks, as well as what we've seen already, that there are varying degrees of emphasis both on theology and on conduct, theology and conduct. They're the two litmus tests, right? Uh, we've seen there's a different gospel, different Jesus can be taught, but we'll also see, particularly in next week's section, that these super apostles can enslave and exploit and take advantage of their hearers. They can put on airs, i.e. act as if they should have their great authority recognised, and even assert the dominance uh, that they have over their hearers. We see that in verse 20, that's for next week. As unpalatable as we might find it, the Word of God makes it clear that false teachers are heading for hell and are not to be tolerated in the household of God. They can be identified by both theology and conduct, varying degrees of one or the other, and godly jealousy 
and Christ-like love, definitely here, and I would argue in the rest of Scripture, are the reasons for and shape the way in which we reject false teachers. But what about us here and now, 21st century? Well, in Australia, throughout most of the 20th century, the biggest flavour, if I can put it that way, of false teaching that I think posed a threat to Bible-believing Christians was uh, what I call, what people call theological liberalism. The idea that the Bible ultimately is not the Word of God, but needs to be subjected to human reason. A brilliant and tragic example of theological liberalism could be seen in the ministry of the Anglican Archbishop of Perth, from 1981 to 2005, a man named Peter Carnley, regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which we affirm this morning in the Apostles' Creed, Archbishop, this is Anglican, Archbishop Peter Carnley said, Paul and Matthew may have believed that the resurrection was physical, but they were men groping towards the truth as we are and conditioned by time, their time, as we are. And again, the best we can do is conclude that the assertion of the resurrection of Jesus is one possible interpretation of the available evidence. The story is a sign which alerts us to the possibility that Jesus was raged. This is an Anglican bishop, an archbishop. Today, from what I can gather, 21st century, the biggest flavour of false teaching that currently poses a threat to Bible-believing Christians in our neck of the woods has got to be what's called the Word of Faith movement, which encompasses, of course, the prosperity gospel. Now, I'll talk about that in just a few moments, but first, I think it's important to stress the thing that guards against the influence of false teachers, and that is quite simply apostolic truth, the truth handed down from the apostles, if you like. That is the teaching of the apostles, including Paul, which we now have in a permanent written record, i.e. the Bible. I know I'm going to sound like a broken record when I say this, but it is for this reason that systematic reading and preaching of the Word of God is a make-or-break issue. What do I mean by that? The practice of our church, and frankly, any half-decent church, is that, well, what, tonight? What's our sermon passage? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 to 15. Guess what's going to be read and preached on next Sunday? Where's it going to start? It's going to 2 Corinthians, whatever the next verse is, verse 16, chapter 11, verse 16, and following. And the week after, it'll be 2 Corinthians 12 or 13, whatever, it's going to be one after the other, so that the whole of 2 Corinthians is read and preached through. And then after that, we're going to 2 Samuel, and we'll start in the first chapter, and we'll read it and go through it. You see, if that's not the normal practice, if the normal practice is, I'm going to come up with, I reckon, a good topic or doctrine or something that I should teach, and I've got a little bit of the Word of God that's going to back me up on whatever it is I'm going to say, well... What do you want to hear? What God has inspired? Or, hi everyone, these are a few of my favourite things. And am I going to choose 
to preach on some things that God has written in here that I find really confronting or unpalatable, if I can, yeah, I probably would choose to just to, to, to not preach on those things. But if I'm governed by this, oh, we're going, we've done 2 Samuel 1 and next week we're doing 2 Samuel 2 and I really don't like 2 Samuel 2, tough rocks, pal, that's the Word of God that He's given for His church, I will preach it. I want to get to the point where I can drop dead and the next guy can come and pick up where I left off and keep going because the power's not in me but in the Word of God. I can't help but notice so often when I've seen false teachers doing their false teaching that it's only ever always in context where systematic reading and preaching through the Bible is not the normal practice. Now, don't hear me as saying that's all you can do. As a matter of fact, in a few weeks, I'll be preaching a topical doctrinal sermon. Even one in four sermons, I'd be happy if that was him. But even then, it's a helpful and notable exception that proves the rule. We are governed by the Word of God. Second, I've, as you heard, highlighted a serious area of false teaching within our own denomination. But one of the biggest threats from outside it, as I said, has got to be the word of faith movement that goes hand in hand with the prosperity gospel. The word of faith movement, if you distill it finely enough, which actually takes a bit of effort, because like a lot of false teaching, it's kind of slippery, you've got to do a bit of research to kind of get it into a package. But the Word of Faith movement basically holds that man, humans, humanity, having been made in God's image, are therefore able to speak things into being. Just like God spoke creation, well, we're made in the image of God so we can speak things into being. I kid you not, there's a name for this, it's called the Doctrine of Positive Confession. It's a real thing. Further, as we are made into God's image or as little gods, and I kid you not, there's the Doctrine of Little Gods, it should be evident, therefore, that we should not be sick or poor or misaligned. Such things can be averted by speaking positively into them because we are in the image of God. Also, it seems that as well as positive confession, the way to overcome any obstacle or adversity that should not really be part of our Christian lived experience is the giving of money which God will then bless and return with dividends, return with more money. And again, there's a, there's a name for this, it's called the doctrine of seed faith. If you've got issues in your life, give God more money, He'll multiply the money and give it back to you. Usually those people who espouse these views also, from what I can glean, attribute roles to God the Holy Spirit which are actually foreign to the Bible. And they relegate the Spirit to something that gives you an important experience, particularly there's this thing called the doctrine of spiritual ecstasy where the Spirit needs to give you His spiritual ecstasy in order for you to somehow grow in your holiness. And I shudder to think what, what happens when you fall down on the other side of the spiritual ecstasy, it's weird. That's the Word of Faith movement. Now, the Word of Faith movement kind of encompasses this other thing called the Prosperity Gospel. And I suspect most of you have heard something of the Prosperity Gospel. It's actually better described as over-realized eschatology, 
But with such a big, nerdy, theology-sounding statement, you can see why people just want to say prosperity gospel. But I'll explain over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the end. Wherever you're going, that determines what you do on the way. You're going to Melbourne, well, you want to make sure you go via not Brisbane, right? You know what I mean? Like, because you know where your end is, you're not going to... What's the eschatology? What's the end point for Christians? Well, if we're in Christ, we're looking forward with great hope to the final day, the resurrection, where we'll be united with our Lord Jesus in heaven with a new resurrection body where there'll be no sickness, no mourning, no crying, no pain, no death, no suffering, where we'll be as rich as you can ever possibly imagine. That's the end. That's for which I suffer currently because I have that hope. But let's say I take that eschatology and I over-realize it, that is, I plonk it on to the life of the Christian here and now. If you're someone who trusts in Jesus, you should have no sickness, you should have health, you should have wealth, you should have victory, you should overcome, you should be the head and not the tail, which is really, really, really dodgy and problematic because the reality is that all people will suffer and when you suffer, the natural outworking of that heretical teaching is that you are not being faithful as a Christian. Don't believe me? I've seen it firsthand. Stacy and I, years ago, were evangelizing a lovely lady. She was really interested, but she wouldn't set foot in a church. Why not? Because she had a young son who had leukemia. But he went to a prosperity preaching thing and got healed. And within three months, he dropped dead because he saw no need to keep taking the medication that was prescribed to him. And I asked some people who were there at the meeting, what happened? And we straight face, I remember the lady telling me, plain as day, she goes, oh yeah, he got healed, it was really good, but obviously he had a lapse in faith, which is why he then died. I heard another one about parents that had a stillborn child and the same thing was said, was we obviously didn't have enough faith, there's some sin in your life that you've had this stillborn child imagine saying even if you did think that was just totally wrong and dodgy man why would you say but it was said it was said to the person that's the upshot of this kind of thing guys as far as i can work out on account of the speakers that they platform the annual hillsong conference put up your hand if you've ever heard of the annual hillsong conference the annual hillsong conference has easily got to be the biggest promoter and propagator of these kinds of false teaching in Sydney and frankly if not in the rest of the country. You don't have to do much research in this regard to work out these people are dodgy, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, Stephen Furtick, they all hold to a word of faith theology very clearly, Kong He, Joseph Prince clearly hold to and espouse prosperity theology. As a matter of fact, that quote I gave earlier, that was a Joseph Prince quote. T.D. Jakes is known as a oneness Pentecostal, which means he rejects the doctrine of the Trinity. Bill Johnson, head of Bethel, thoroughly word of faith and prosperity. All these speakers have been keynote speakers at Hillsong's annual conference in Australia over the last decade. And friends, we should both desperately pray for their repentance and their conversion. And frankly, we should also strongly discourage 
any Bible-believing Christian from attending and supporting and being influenced by that kind of rubbish. In fact, we rightly go a step further. If you've been around here for a while, you'll have worked out that in our congregational singing, we don't have any stuff by Hillsong or any stuff by Bethel. And that's because singing is actually a ministry of the Word. There are all kinds of services in the body of Christ, but a service that's especially important and protected is the ministry of the Word, what we do with God's Word. And singing is a Word ministry. How can you expect the thinking follower of Jesus to engage in a ministry of the Word where at the very point they're engaging in it, they are funding directly and advertising directly false teachers. That's horrendous. It should make you sick. And yet there are a great many even reformed, Bible-believing, Sydney, Anglican churches that do that sort of thing. It's, it's a problem, it's a worry. Speaking of inside threats, back in our own neck of the woods again, another massive problem in our denomination is the rise of the claims of bullying by clergy. You've got your theology in which you can end up heaps dodgy, but like I said, there's also conduct. And my wife, Stacey, happens to work, it happens that she works for the PSU, the uh, professional Standards Unit of the Sydney Anglican Diocese, where they deal with difficult issues within the church. And she'll tell you one of the big problems that's getting more and more prominent is bullying by church workers or, or two church workers. Where you've got someone who's in a position of power or leadership and they marginalise you, they slight you, they do little things to belittle you and they, it insidiously builds up over time and, and it's very hard to kind of pin down. One of the problems is we keep forgetting that of the three C's, the first one's the most important. What are the three C's, Ben? Oh, thank you for asking. Character, conviction, competency. Any minister of the Word, and frankly, any mature Christian, is concerned with their character, whether they're a godly person, their convictions, the things they believe, that's the theology, the truth, and their competency, whether they can actually do the job that they're setting out to do, whether they can serve God effectively. We keep looking at the competency and the conviction and keep not looking at the character. You see, you can be one of the finest preachers with the finest doctrine and yet you can be a major jerk at the same time. Far better to be a mediocre preacher with some, you know, like rough edges in your doctrine or whatever, far better that, yet to be a godly, gentle, loving, humble, Christ-fearing person than the other. Character is like 10 times more important than competency and conviction, and we keep missing it. You ever wondered why you guys have to listen to me preach and Jono and Gav? Like, we could get the most amazing preachers in the world and stick up a YouTube of them right here, right? Yeah, put Alastair Beggs on there. I saw some Gary Biller sermons recently. They're brilliant. John Woodhouse, you know. Hey, man, who was at the weekend away and loved the, the teaching of uh, Philip Jensen, right? You get some Philip Jensen behind us. Why do you have to have... Why do, why do we keep putting me and, and Jono and Gav up here? I'll tell you why. 
Wonderful as those people are, much better than I am at preaching, wonderful as they are, we're not in relationship with them. You can know me, you can see me. When I start doing something really dodgy and going off the rails, there's a much higher chance that someone here will work out that I've gone dodgy and off the rails. If one of them goes dodgy and off the rails, you're not going to work it out. You might keep seeing their competence. And really, this happens. Ravi Zacharias, who knows, who remembers about Ravi Zacharias? Yeah, you can go back a generation. Um, there's another guy I like to do, do the same thing. Really prominent fan. Mark Driscoll, who's listened to the Mark Driscoll stuff? That's another big one. Amazing. Actually, I didn't think he was amazing. But most people thought he was amazing then. Terrible, terrible character. Great, maybe with the competency and the conviction actually sort of half, but character, no. Finally, and this is like drawing it together, so if you've fallen asleep, just kind of wake up for this last bit. I find a really helpful thing to help us approach the, the issue of false teachers from our end, how we deal with it, how we address it. How do we stop going either into witch hunt mode or into mama's mantra mode? How do we avoid those two problems? Well, if you think about it like this, it can be really easy and effective. You get the right relationship between head and heart. Most of us, most of the time, are soft-headed and hard-hearted. We need to get it the other way around. We need to be hard-headed and soft-hearted. Surely that's actually a fitting description of the Apostle Paul and even of Jesus. You think Paul goes hard here, servants of Satan masquerading as, as apostles. He can go harder. He's read Galatians, you know, for the Judaizers who, who keep going about circumcision. Paul says, I wish they go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Jesus in Matthew's Gospel talking to the Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisee, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you get him, you make him twice the son of hell that you are. That's Jesus. And yet, same Jesus, gentle, lowly, humble in heart. The same Paul, timid, went among you, supposedly. Or at least he can be... I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's not going to be a burden to you. See... You can be soft-hearted and hard-headed and get things sort of right and you can then, I think, quite effectively be condemning of the falsehood without being sort of Mr. High and Mighty judgmental at the same time. You see that in Paul, you see that in Jesus. Matter of fact, I've seen it in the flesh. One of my all-time favourite preachers is a guy who actually has a reputation of talking pretty unhinged and, you know, being a bit of a pulpit beater. And I went to meet him in person and have a chat with him and he's got to be the most warm, friendly guy you've ever met in your life. It's unbelievable. It's like Jekyll and Hyde, right? <laughs> Do you guys know that reference? Anyway, because he has a soft heart. Better to have soft heart and a hard head, be discerning in your head, but be a lovable, God-fearing, Christ-like person than to be soft in the head, but actually be pretty hard-hearted. Now, at this point in the talk, I've got to say something nice and conclude in prayer, but I realise I've said a lot of things tonight that people might have questions about or that might have even ruffled feathers and so I'd rather give you guys the opportunity, very quickly, if you have anything that you want to ask to do so and you've got, I don't have my phone, one minute, we got, oh, okay, wow, okay, 
All right, let's do this. Bang, bang, bang. Matthew. Biden is that? Yeah. I think with word of faith and prosperity, you've got dodgy, dodgy theology, even though it's often associated with dodgy character of the people that espouse it. I think in our neck of the woods, like I said, the character stuff is more of our problem. I don't think our, I mean, there are a few dodgy theologies around in Anglican circles. Uh, the new perspective on justification in Paul is a dodgy, dodgy theology that's floating around and hopefully you're looking at me like, what's that? I've never heard of that. I'm really hoping, has anyone ever heard of that? Oh, Rachel has, that's all right. That's all right, we'll fix you up later. <laughs> Carol has. But I think that's pretty much... There's obviously always going to be theological liberalism. You know, the Bible isn't exactly the Word of God authoritative, you know, our reason kind of trumps what's there or where you hear people say, oh, we're only hearing one side of a two-sided conversation when we look at the Word of God and so people want to reduce the authority of the Word. Those things are alive and well in our neck of the woods but I think uh, the bigger problem is the one that I mentioned is, is less with theology and far more with character, with conduct. I think we're seeing people who can dot their theological I's and T's nicely which is a good thing, but who frankly seem hard in heart and seem not gentle, who seem bullyish, or who seem ends justify the means. We've got to convert this place no matter what. So if you're getting in my way, get out of the way because I'm so godly, I want to convert people and you're making it hard, so get lost. Right? It's that kind of character more than... Uh, uh, theology that I think is, is more likely to be our undoing in our neck of the woods. So, like I said, I've got a wife who works where she sees this stuff and uh, yeah, it's not pretty. If you're going to go into ministry, for goodness sake, be like Jesus who's gentle and humble in heart. Be like Paul and condemn the false teachers, absolutely. Be like Jesus and go nuts at it, but you, you, you've got to be a loving person. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a jerk, it doesn't matter what you say, good and bad, it's just, it's just not going to fall on on good ears. So yeah, I think that's more in our neck of the woods, it's more about the, the character than the, than the theology. Praise God, we've got a good theological heritage. It's only ever one generation away from heresy, I know that, but thank God for more college. We're going to have a more college day later in the year where we pray about them and it's a thing worth supporting and considering. Anyway, good question. Who was next? Oh yeah, yeah, keep going. Yep. Yeah. Sort of, yes, because Paul and Jesus are. So, the ferocity with which Paul and Jesus will address some issues is actually right and good and sound and ought to be emulated. Because God is a holy God and they stand to represent Him and God has some pretty forceful things to say about some issues. If that's all you ever got from your preacher, you'd start to get pretty worried <laughs> uh, because 
there is a lot of other stuff where the right kind of tone and response is to be very not forceful, to be very gentle and very kind and very blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth sort of thing Uh, if brothers if someone is caught in a sin Galatians 6 you want to restore them gently Uh, the man of God who's going to be appointed as an elder must be gentle and not quarrelsome in 1 Timothy something somewhere (laughs) 1 Timothy 3 thanks boss And maybe Titus as well. But if you get someone who's never going to say the hard word, then frankly, what's the point? Soft-headed. It's no good. Awesome stuff, brother. Yo! There are people who on account of their ongoing hard-hearted rebellion against God will be shut out from His presence for all eternity, 2 Thessalonians 1, and that will bring great glory to our Heavenly Father who is holy and righteous and just. But you don't want to hear me say, oh, well, that person going to hell is fantastic because it's going to give great glory to God. What a horrible thing. Yeah, there are true things that Joel Osteen says, that Joseph Prince says, there's all sorts of things there. And yes, God can use a very bent stick, He can use a donkey, and He has in the Bible to speak better words than the guy that was writing it. But how on earth could that ever possibly be a justification for accepting stuff that frankly pollutes the household of God? God is very angry when it comes to idolatry in His temple, and I've got news for you, if we're the church, we are the temple of God... And he says, come out, be separate. So, the ends justifying the means kind of thinking is not God kind of thinking. Uh, So, I'd say to someone like that, well, if you want to go to hell, you can also glorify God, but I don't think you want to. So, let's look at what the Bible actually says about how to approach these things. And the guy's a full-on heretic, run. That's, It's that simple. Wonderful question though, thank you, lovely. Yo. Yeah. Explain open and relational theology. Yeah, I see. I have heard of this, I just haven't heard it in that name. Yeah, yeah. Um, Open theism, possibly. Uh, No, it's dodgy, because what it does is, first of all, it just grates with some parts of Scripture. That's always a problem, right? Uh, Every hair in your head is numbered, you know. God knows a word before you're going to pray it uh, to Him. he has set a day, Acts 17, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. Like, all the Bible evidence says the future is actually set and planned by God who is sovereign in all things. And 
uh, yeah, not a sparrow will fall the, to, the, to the ground outside the, the, the will or care of our Heavenly Father. I can understand why you want to do that, because it's always hard to reconcile the reality of real, human, responsible choice and decision with real outcomes and consequences. I want to punch this thing, I can, and I will, and I did. But that in no way ever negates the sovereign control. You see, God is, if I could put it like this, God is so sovereign that His sovereign even remains despite the fact that humans make right and real choices and decisions all the time. Only the sovereign God of the Bible remains sovereign as we make real choices. And if you sort of can't be okay with that, you'll look for solutions like that. But that to me sounds like a dodgy theological approach because it seems to put God in a box that the Scripture doesn't put Him into. So, yeah, that one would be a, let's keep looking at the Word of God and that's going to defend against this particular theological error. But yeah, thank, now that I've heard about it, yeah, I might, maybe you guys will, will come across it and you'll we'll have a response as well. That's wonderful. Thanks, guys. Um, are we, just quickly, are we going to have prayer immediately now? Is Gav going to come and pray? Are we going to have a song? Let me, let me conclude in prayer and then we'll have a song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was humble, who was gentle, and in His complete and perfect holiness, would rage against the things that rightly angered His Holy Father. Lord God, may we not tolerate false teachers. May we so care about having a pure and sincere devotion to Christ that in godly love and in godly jealousy we get rid of, we run from, we separate ourselves from false teachers and their bad influence. Heavenly Father, we pray that we will be soft-hearted like our Lord, who is gentle and lowly, and we pray that we will be unashamed in standing for truth, for Jesus is truth and your word is truth. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.